I mean, I don't know what to tell you in terms of moving halfway across the world into a country that you don't know anyone in um, alone as a young woman. I don't think that's an easy decision for anyone to leave behind their family, their friends, their loved ones. Initiating launch sequence. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Ready for Launch, the show where I talk to founders about the process of getting their business off the ground. My guest today is Lauren Winata. Lauren, welcome to Ready for Launch. How are you today? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. It's a pleasure to have you. I would love if you would do me the honors of introducing your business and sharing what you think is unique about it. Sure. So Malati Drinks is a non-alcoholic spirit. We have two expressions, fresh and classic, and they're both made from 21 functional plants. And what that means is that, you know, the drinks both by nature of the ingredients that are in it, um, you know, help to both detox your liver and they're good for digestion. So they do fall into the better for you category. So there's no added sugar, no artificial colors, flavors, sweeteners, any of those things. And, you know, why I really was inspired to do this was to bring uh, the amazing, rich and storied history of our Asian tonic drinks to life in a very modern way that would fit in any of our lifestyles in any city. Wonderful. Uh, tell me a little bit more about this better for you category. Is that an official drink category or something you've invented for your uh, non-alcoholic spirits? I think it is a category known in the CPG industry. So consumer product goods industry, not just for drinks, but also for food and, and most consumables, even, you know, makeup, skincare, it's just understanding the notion that maybe some of the mass produced companies and products um, don't have the consumer's health and wellness in the forefront of their formulations and their products. And so we're here to fix that. That's great. I'd love to hear a bit more about this, these Asian tonics that you're kind of referencing. I, I don't know anything about that world, to be honest. Yeah, so I, I'll give a bit of a history lesson. So back in 1293, Southeast Asia, which is, you know, where I come from, I'm originally Indonesian, but also spent a good amount of my life growing up in Singapore. Uh, which is in Southeast Asia, this whole archipelago used to be united under the Majapahit Empire in 1293. And during this time, it was the last great empire of Asia. A lot of trade um, was the source of wealth uh, for the region and for this empire. And it was primarily, you know, ingredient trading from not just throughout Asia, but also from, from Asia to the West which is, you know, how if you think back to the Maluku Islands or the Spice Islands in Indonesia, you know, it's where a lot of our, our spices around the world come from. Cinnamon, star anise, it's where they originated. And that's why you also see a lot of similar plants and botanicals and ingredients used throughout tonic drinks uh, in the region. So, and, and in the cooking also. And so we're just here today to bring those exact same ingredients 
to the world in a way that is authentic to us and our heritage. And what exactly would a tonic drink be? Is this something people would have day to day or is it more of a medicinal type drink that you might have for a certain ailment? In Asia, I think we have slightly of a, a slight different understanding of how we approach food and drink that we try to have, you know, balanced diets with foods on a on a daily basis that we know to be good for us. That's why you see lots of herbal soups with, you know, goji berries and with ginger and and a few other ingredients that, you know, Chinese licorice that potentially in America are viewed as adaptogens or a different subcategory of food. However, I think it's a lot more integrated in Asian culture. And so we're drinking these herbal drinks on a daily basis. We're eating them in our food on a daily basis, um, rather than thinking of, you know, food as, or, or this is a separate category as medicine. Mm. Food is medicine, basically. Exactly. Okay, great. You've mentioned these, the focal point is that they are non-alcoholic spirits. Why did you decide to pursue that category? I get asked a lot why we consider ourselves spirits when the basis of what a spirit is in the alcohol world is, you know, something very high proof, lots of alcohol. And um, that's by nature what a spirit is uh, and distilled. Also, we are none of those things. We are not distilled. We are cold extracted. In fact, we do not extract in ethanol like some other non-alcoholic brands. We solely extract in water. Um, we are not fermented either. Uh, we do not have any fermentation in our process. And the reason for this was I wanted to produce a drink that was very inclusive. So, you know, whether you're religious or pregnant or on antibiotics or just not feeling a drink that day, um, I wanted to ensure a drink, you know, that didn't have any alcohol at all in in Asia, over 50% of women are actually allergic to alcohol. You know, my mother, she'll have a bite of tiramisu and she'll have a, a migraine for the rest of the day. The day's ruined. Um, and that's a considerable amount uh, of people. And so I just wanted people not to have to think about um, if I could drink this, if I'm vegan or gluten-free, can I drink this drink? Yes, of course you can. Um, or, you know, if you're halal or more religious uh, we wanted to include everyone in that and we, you know to answer your question there's two separate things to that one is the inclusivity by naming it a spirit it was just more to educate the consumer on how to drink it spirits are typically drunk mixed in a cocktail or a mocktail um, and that's you know very much with our with our drink, we wanted something that firstly had longevity. And so with our bottle, you know, you can keep that. It had 17 drinks in a full bottle, which means you can just keep it on this shelf with, you know, non-alcoholic wines. It's a single serve use. That, that bottle, if you're just drinking alone, if you're the only person not drinking in a group and you bring one bottle of non-alcoholic wine, you have to finish that yourself. With our, or it's going to go bad in, in two days one day. 
Um, with our drink, you can keep it, you know, you can just make a drink for yourself when you feel like it, for friends when you feel like it, keep it on your shelf for three months without any issue. And so I think that also adds into the inclusivity factor that you're able to bring it, just make a couple of drinks and not feel beholden to make sure everyone drinks the same drink you drink. Is the non-alcoholic side of it similar to how the Asian tonic drinks would have been? Or is that kind of part of the adaptation and bringing it into the new world is the removal of alcohol from this drink as a sun? Traditionally, our tonic drinks did not contain alcohol. So it truly is um, just a celebration of these amazing plants and ingredients that we have used for generations. Um, the, the difference is in our unique extraction process, we've you know combined the modern technology that we have. Um, it's a low and slow process. Uh, no fermentation, no ethanol extraction. Ingredients are extracted for over six weeks in water without fermentation. There's negative oxygen, so it does not ferment. As a result, what you get is a lot more mouthfeel and body and oil and weight in the liquid. When you're thinking of alcohol, it kind of has more weight than water on your palate, let's say. And the way that we do this is kind of a similar way to, you know, the old style of making perfumes. When you're extracting for a perfume, you're getting all the nose, you know, all those volatile substances on your nose. It smells great. You get the delicate flavors that are not killed. Um, and yeah, that's, and also, you know, as a function, the health benefits, because we're treating these ingredients with care and, and love. So that's really how we've decided to go about our extraction and creation of the liquid. I've never heard this term of weight on the palate with reference <laughs> to drinks. Is, is that, um, yeah, tell me more about that. What is that to do with flavor? Is it like intensity of flavor where something has more weight or is it something else? When you drink, so just think if you're drinking an alcohol like a tequila or a vodka, it has more viscosity and weight than water, do you think? Yeah, I guess it's hard for me to differentiate the impact of something having a strong flavor to its to its sensation. I've never tried to do that. Uh, I have to find myself a bottle of tequila. But I guess a lot of spirits are, yeah, more viscous, maybe, especially if you're in the sweeter end of things. Sure. Um, Well, you know, alcohol itself is not just for the flavor, which, you know, is it's it's flavor and then it's experience, right? Flavor is, you know, flavor is is what it is. It's a unique, different experience um, with maybe more bitterness, a bit more thing. But then there's mouthfeel. When you're drinking an alcoholic drink, maybe there's a bit of a burn, which we're not trying to replicate. But then also, you know, there's a bit more oiliness on the palate. Um, There's a different experience that holds you back from just gulping it down, we hope. Um, You know, that makes it more of a... A holistic experience rather than if you just drink a soda or a water or a juice um and you know and then also part of that experience is the ritual of having a beautiful bottle that has that heritage that craftsmanship you know those fine ingredients and then and then the ritual of making an adult drink mm. you mentioned the 
you described it as a spirit because you want that to evoke that idea of mixing it in drinks. Is that the only way that you would drink these? Um, or, or do some people also like still take it like you would have a neat spirit, you know, or on the rocks or something like that? Yeah, when I crafted this, I'm a massive foodie. So I love food. Um, and I do like wine also. So I wanted to create a drink that was versatile. I think I think some other people have tried definitely non-alcoholic spirits that just take, taste not great on its own. Um, and I wanted to create something that not only was super flavorful on its own, so you can drink it on its own, it will be strong, it will be very strong um, and very intense. Or you can drink it mixed, or you know, I've also seen some people drink it with alcohol for a lower ABV cocktail. And so you're really welcome to drink it how you wish. Great. Okay. Well, I'd love to come back to the drinks in a little bit, but I really like to rewind early on in these shows and and get a bit more of your history um, as well as the products. And I find it's always interesting to look back to people's childhood and was there, you know, you are an entrepreneur now, you've created this business. Was that something you grew up with, this idea of like building businesses and were you around entrepreneurs as a child or was this something you discovered later on in life? Both my parents are entrepreneurs and so they've started their own company together actually. So it was something that I think was very culturally innate. I'm you know, I'm Indonesian. And in Indonesia, I think it's quite common uh, to have a business or even a side hustle since a very young age. And I think it was just very much embedded in the way that I was raised. In fact, uh, when I was in primary school, uh, younger, I have always loved cooking. And so I attended a chocolate making workshop to make, you know, chocolate truffles. And I ended up making these chocolate truffles at home and then (laughs) distributing them and selling them to uh, my friends in school. So yeah, that was, it was not, I was pulled into the principal's office, by the way, for that and reprimanded, (laughs) you're not not supposed to profit of friends. (laughs) But I was providing a service. Yeah, I was providing a service that everyone wanted. (laughs) Yeah. I took pre-orders too. (laughs) Did you? What was your most popular truffle? Or were they all, was it it one type? It was just one. It was just a, a milk chocolate truffle with a, a chocolate ganache inside. <laughs> and after this booming success, you didn't decide <laughs> to go into the chocolate industry as an adult? No, it was it was a bit too tough. Um, I actually worked in venture capital in Southeast Asia uh, as my as my profession. Okay. Uh, is that what you did straight out of university? I actually worked um, as a operations manager for a fine dining restaurant group. Again, I've always loved food. I love being around it. I love eating it. I just enjoy hospitality. And I think truly that's what impacted my whole life growing up, you know, 
my my father and my and my mother were massive on hospitality and I think it runs throughout our culture where we want to make sure that everyone feels at home always whether that's in a social setting in our homes or even just outside you know um it's it's just the Asian hospitality that we have running through our veins and part of this is you know even if we're in a group of, of just strangers that we've met and everyone has a different viewpoint Meh, it doesn't matter as much to us as long as everyone's having a good time and being respectful. You know, we don't all have to be on the same page. And I think that, you know, is something that I've brought towards, you know, wanting to work in hospitality, figuring out that, okay, maybe restaurants, working directly in restaurants is not the best fit for me and then going into venture capital to see if I could support other very early stage startups kind of grow and reach their potential while understanding also what it takes to run a business. What do you think you learned most from working in venture capital? Is that being a venture capitalist does not qualify you to run a company. <laughs> okay. Did you learn that whilst being a venture capitalist or did you have you since noticed that now that you've started to run a company? I think we had inklings um, about it, but, you know, it was definitely solidified once I had my own company. Mm. At what point did you go from working in venture capital to thinking about starting your own business? So venture capital in Southeast Asia, when I worked there, was a very male-dominated, work-hard, play-hard mentality. It was packed with happy hours, travel, networking, and limited sleep. So I didn't want to, and frankly, I could not keep up with the boozing and knew that there had to be a better drink than, you know, my soda, water, and lime, which was my drink of choice. So I looked back to the tonic drink recipes that we've had, you know, since 1293 throughout Pars, um, not just for me, but also for, you know, the 50% of Asian women who are allergic to alcohol and any other person who just wanted to drink less but still live their lives, you know? And this was truly a mission to connect drinkers and, and non-drinkers from pain points that I personally experienced and also saw with, with other friends. You know, did you dabble in this before you were convinced it was a business opportunity or did you just get to a point and say, hey, I need a new career, I quit, let me go and explore something else? How did that happen for you? The tipping point, I think, was actually talking to a mentor, and he said the only way to be an entrepreneur is to be one. I kind of had my feet in both ships for a while, uh, trying to to start up the company, you know, while I was working a full time job and traveling like crazy, which, you know, you, you can't really do. So at a certain point, I just had to bite the bullet, and I thought, you know, well, now. <laughs> Is that when you moved to San Francisco? No, I initially started the company in Singapore. We were in the thick of COVID. So in, in Southeast Asia, our COVID laws, I think, were much stricter than the rest of the world, especially the Western world. And so we only truly got out of COVID um, and that whole cycle of restrictions and lockdowns in the summer of 2022. So that was truly, you know, the only time that I could leave the country without facing 
two weeks of quarantine or even one month of quarantine when I were to to go back to Singapore where my team is. So, you know, we did the best and, and launched it in Singapore, um, tried to navigate, you know, the shutdowns of restaurants, of bars and hotels, which were primarily our distribution points. Um, and And I've just brought the company to the U.S. this year in 2023. Gotcha. Had you been to... Like, had you lived in the U.S. before or was this just a whole new experience for you? It was a whole new experience. I had previously gone to university in America, but, you know, uni life is very different from adult life. And so and I've never lived in San Francisco before. So it really was kind of just taking a plunge and seeing, well, let's see if I can make this work. And how's that gone for you? It's going. Yeah, I'll let you know in, in six months. <laughs> yeah, how long have you been in San Francisco now? Kind of on and off for, for I think, coming to two months now. So it's okay. not been too long. long at yeah. all. No. And what is it like moving a business like this from one side of the world to the other? What do you have to, you know, throw everything out and start again or is it very easy to translate a lot of it and just kind of ship the products to a new country no it's not um i think starting a company in any market is the same as starting a completely new company from scratch what is a bit more challenging for us is asia is a very different culture and market to america so me not being an American and coming to a country where I essentially don't have any connections or know too many people. It's just like starting from scratch, to be honest, but I had to do it because, you know, Singapore is a, a, a beautiful market. Um, we still, you know, we, we still supply to our home market. However, the U S has just more opportunities and more potential for market growth. In my opinion, I could be wrong, but I'm hoping I'm not. I hope you're not too. How have you, obviously it's still very early days, but how have you been navigating that change? Like how have you, how yeah. how did you plan what to do to start afresh? I think, to be honest, I should have thought more uh, before I just took the plunge. But, you know, reaching out to other people who are in the similar industry and kind of then building my network from scratch in the US is really something that, you know, has been a priority and understanding truly the consumer here and how to get to them, who even is our consumer. I think these are all in the forefront um, of everything that we do. Yeah, what is, what is it when you talk about your network, what are you actually trying to get access to? I'm trying to get access to people who understand the Alcobev market. We still distribute via alcohol channels, unfortunately. You know, there's no designated channel for non-alcoholic spirits because we kind of straddle that line between we still sell to the bartenders, the sommeliers, people who historically buy alcohol. You know, not many retailers have designated channels for non-alcoholic products. Everyone's still trying to figure that out. And because, you know, the market is so nascent, it's just getting a good grasp of understanding 
the historical channels and then where the potential is to to grow into new channels and so it's it's really talking to anyone from other founders who are in the same space to retailers who are interested in this space and from people who are just interested as an individual consumer so honestly i'll talk to anyone <laughs> you've mentioned the distribution through bars and hotels a couple of times was that always your strategy from the start that like that would need to be a focus to be in kind of physical uh, like retail for want of a better word um, rather than say going direct to consumer selling online things like that what sets Malati apart from all the other non-alcoholic spirits is I truly believe that we are the most flavorful non-alcoholic spirit. And that's a function of, you know, our heritage, the craftsmanship that we're doing, and the fine ingredients that we are using, which guide us every day in our company. And so as a result, I believe that the best way for someone to discover us is to taste us. And, you know, we're not one of these super trendy Instagram brands that, you know, has relied on just good looking people to get by. We're truly trying to build a longevity product that is appreciated for its quality. And so I think that's kind of where we differentiate ourselves in the market. And as a result, who knows the best quality in food and beverage? It is the people who cook with it, who make drinks every single day of their lives or, you know, at least five days a week. Um, and those are the sommeliers and bartenders who have tried all the other non-alks. And we have found success with them Previously, you know, we we're in over 30 Michelin-starred restaurants and top cocktail bars. So I think that is an achievement for us and historically where we have found a lot of success. And so we want to replicate that so that more people can taste us. And I guess those people, if they like your product, they then act as potential salespeople for you, you know, recommending these drinks to customers. Yep, exactly. Okay, I'd love to go back a little bit again to you know that early stage when you've left your job and you're thinking that you want to do something in this space of non-alcoholic drinks where did you actually start in terms of coming up with the product so I started in a very inefficient way I made a list. I had 150 ingredients that were used in tonic drinks from throughout the region. And I wanted to make the most functional, the most luxury uh, non-alcoholic drink. But that was, you know, not feasible unless I wanted to charge $1,000 per bottle with the ingredients that, you know, were in it. So I had to work with a food scientist and Ayurvedic specialist because we were working with so many natural materials to ensure that it was a stable product, but also that the ingredients went well together. You know, we have a concept in our Eastern medicine about balance, and that is that not all ingredients go well together. And so that not all, you know, ingredients optimize the functionality of of each other. And so I truly wanted to create something that was well studied, that was good, 
And so I had to work with a food scientist and Ayurvedic specialist with lots of R&D. It took us two years to produce our drink. So that also, so function was one element of it and honoring the amazing ingredients that we're using. The second part of it was flavor, right? It has to taste good. I think at the end of the day, I genuinely believe that people will go back to things that they like the taste of. And so then we worked with sommeliers and bartenders who are people who who know what people like to taste and drink and eat and wanted to create something that had the complexity. So a really good balance of sweet, sour, bitter, umami, and something that could compete with the amazing wines that they had on their menus and the amazing other spirits that they had on their menus and something that they would feel proud serving to their guests who are, you know, refined eaters. Mm. So you have these 150 ingredients and you know, you want to find on the one hand, a combination of kind of effective uh, combination from a health point of view, but also delicious from a flavor point of view. How do you actually start and say, okay, like, do you, do you pick one or two key ingredients and try and build around there because you think they'll taste good or do you, you know, like how do you whittle down that initial batch of ideas? Maybe that's what I should have done to be honest with you, but I did not. (laughs) Instead I looked towards um, these tonic drink recipes that we've had and saw the formulations that have been used, you know, since 1293. And they these are all written for, for anyone to see on palm leaf manuscripts. So before we had paper, we wrote things on the leaves of the palm trees. And you'll see them throughout Asia today, too. If you go to any museum, they have them. Uh, they're also what's on our bottle label. If you have a look at our bottle label, one of the hands holds goji berries, which are is an ingredient in both of our drinks. And then the other hand holds a palm leaf manuscript. And so it really was about bringing these amazing, you know, historical recipes to the modern day, Um, you know, with ingredients that we can source in this day, because there's no use if I could not source one ingredient at scale. Have there been quite significant changes in what's easily available since the 1200s? I would say... There has been a shift in, you know, it's certain things were rarer, you know, and, and less commercially farmed. There's less incentive to grow certain ingredients in this modern day. Maybe the yield is lower. And so it's just really about balancing all that because after all, we still need to be practical um, and not have something run out of stock, you know? Yeah. Did you have any big hiccups along the way during this flavor creation process yeah i don't know how many hiccups we could talk about in this one podcast but it has (laughs) not been smooth sailing (laughs) i think when you're trying to create something completely new and that has never been done you're not going off too much historical data you know there's not a whole industry set up for it in singapore we didn't even have a co-packer that could produce our product and that's why we fully produce in-house in fact um, I have a team it's a fully Asian women team that produces our 
drinks for us in our own office. So what is what was it about your process that meant no one was doing it? Is, is that the, ex, the like extraction through water or is it something to do with the combination of ingredients? It was all the above, both those things. The formulation of it was such a low and slow process. Can you imagine telling a factory, hey, well, we want to do this extraction, but it takes six weeks to do it. Um, and they'd be like, no, that that's mad. You know, other clients, we can extract in ethanol in a couple of hours and they'll pay us, you know, the same amount. And so if you look at all the other non-alcoholic drinks, a lot of them extract in ethanol. It takes an hour max to extract everything together. Um, we are a six week process. So that's part of our craftsmanship that we wanted to honor. Another thing is we have 21 ingredients in our drink. I think our closest competitor has a third of that. And simply when we went to co-packers, you know, throughout the world, in America, in the UK, they were like, they said to us literally 21 ingredients. Why? That's crazy. Like, firstly, how much does your liquid cost? And secondly, why is that necessary when everyone else is doing like less than a third of that in the most? And, you know, that's truly something we wanted to to do. And and so probably not the most economical, if I'm being honest. Um, we could have made a product that is much cheaper and sold for the same price, I think. But, you know, I also wanted to be proud um, of the product that I'm putting out into this world and truly believe that it is the best quality. How was it that you came to your extraction process over the others when you know it was obviously typical for everyone to use ethanol to extract how did you decide oh we've got this new process and it's going to be water in six hours six weeks sorry and that's okay so one of the biggest considerations for us is you know while i'm personally don't have dietary restrictions um you know in southeast asia we have a large group of, of a Muslim population. And so for the certification of MUIS halal, so this is very different from the EU halal certification in, in Asia and in the Middle East and in some more religious markets, they do not allow any fermentation because that produces ethanol and they do not allow ethanol to be used anywhere in the process. So that means to them, a de-alcoholized wine is not non-alcoholic because it still contains that 0.5% alcohol. If you go to the Middle East, Seedlip is designated as alcohol on their menu because it has 0.5% alcohol in it. Um, so we wanted to be super inclusive to everyone that was involved um, and who could you know, benefit from, from our drink, from our product. And that's why kind of look towards then, okay, what are the alternative ways to craft this product and and one of them was you know kind of the more traditional perfume making which allowed all that flavor and all those oils and scent to be extracted just without the alcohol did you have to vary that perfume making process for your end output or was it quite consistent across the yeah board? i mean you know what people don't see behind the scenes is the tons and tons of stability testing that goes into place into a, into a drink or a food product, you know, we are FDA approved 
for the US market. And that means that we had to thoroughly test for everything. There's so many components. And so it was a lot of going back and forth. Okay, how can we make this more stable? How can we make this safer? How can we make this foolproof for all of our customers to, to keep in their back bar? What is stability testing? It's um, a test that a lot of food products and drinks especially have to go through, not if, you know, in certain categories um, to ensure that there's no yeast or mold growing in it, to make sure the pH level of the drink is safe for consumption, to make sure there's no bacteria growing in a drink, um, that it's not going to get anyone sick, things like that. You have two expressions of your spirit now. How did you eventually get down to those two? We initially just launched with one. So Malati Classic was the initial uh, expression that we had. That is our more bitter and herbal expression. You can think of it as an alcoholic Amaro almost. It replaces dark spirits in cocktails. So it's going to replace, you know, your whiskey in a whiskey sour. It's going to replace your dark rum in a cocktail. Um, and and it does, it has more bitter notes and it is definitely complex that even Myself, when someone served me a Malati spritz who just had soda water and Malati in it, I had to send it back and say, I requested a drink without alcohol. And the bartender was like, no, 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 I promise you, I did not put alcohol in it. And as a result, you know, this was launched into the market and, and people love it. But I did not take into consideration people who maybe are not used to such strong adult flavors people who historically have not drunk so much and don't enjoy the taste of alcohol don't enjoy that um those notes and so as a result to counter that we produced fresh so fresh sits on the completely other side of the spectrum where it's a lot more tropical it's a lot zestier um, and it is designed to be more of a clear spirit replacement. So if you like vodka in a Moscow mule, if you like tequila in a margarita, that's going to be a lot more up your alley, a lot more tropical and, and different in flavor profile. And so it really just caters to the different tastes that people have. There's no one size fits all. Sounds like I would definitely be a Malati fresh God, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't like adult flavors at all. I'm much, I'm a kid at heart when it comes to my drinks. And that's great. We have something for you. Perfect. But before you even got to market, like with your classic, how did you test out your product? Were you like putting different variations together, getting people to come in and taste them as different cocktails? Or did you like, you know, was it quite a small team and you were quite confident in your own choices? Yeah, so I went door to door to many sommeliers that I respected in, in the top Michelin starred restaurants. I went to the top cocktail bars of the world in London and Singapore, and I had various bartenders try it because I thought that that was the, me the need that we were meeting. However, you know, when you have folks who are used to strong flavors, who actually enjoy, you know, more complex flavors because they're used to it every day of their lives, then you're producing a fairly niche product, which I think with Malati Classic, it really catered to that alcohol drinker who 
eats at Michelin starred restaurants and who likes fancy cocktails and cocktail bars. And that's not everyone. And so when we, when I produced that, you know, I, I went for the, that subsection of, of drinker um, and it worked. And I think those people like us, however, we needed to be more approachable also. And that's why it took so long to find the right balance of not just, you know, this group of people with maybe more discerning palates, but just the average Joe, just the average person who makes a drink for themselves at home um, and who wants, who has that need. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know if I answered your question. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, was there a feedback process with, and, and how did that, you know, what did that really look like when you're in the kitchen make, making variations, things like that? Yeah. So that, so one was the chefs and stuff. And then I had to just go to regular people. And so I just gathered maybe like a hundred friends that I knew or like friends of friends. And I started tasting them on a few variations that we had sent out massive Google docs asking for lots of people's opinions. And, and that's truly how I set it up. I just asked random strangers sometimes like, Hey, will you try this and give me your honest feedback? So I don't know if that was a very studied approach, but that was my approach. <laughs> like, were you doing this through the pandemic when you couldn't see people? Were you like shipping yeah. out little bottles to people, to your friends? Exactly. How were you actually going through this? That was exactly how I did it. I was just shipping out things. I was going on various group chats, asking my friends to find other friends who are willing to to be little guinea pigs and give honest feedback. Did you have to make any major pivots during the experimentation process? Yes, I think initially the liquid was firstly way too strong. It was way too intense for people. Um, they didn't know what to expect. And so I think I had made it much too intense, much too bitter um, for people. And so it was really finding the right balance between that. Was that original intensity more referencing the Asian tonics that it was based on and you had to you know adjust it for a different market's palette or that was just kind of how it turned out the first time I think it's more so how it turned out that I just wanted to create something that was very economical for people too that you could just use a little bit and have it go so much further um, but then it's not how people were used to consuming alcohol you know not mm. a super concentrated version of something yeah makes sense uh, pouring the two shots in the glass and getting mm -hmm. an intense bitter hit and what about the the brand like where did the the name come from and and how did you go about creating the you know the visual side of it the what's on the shelf that people were going yeah. to admire and hold yeah so malati itself is the national flower of indonesia so it's an ode to the heritage and the ingredients that we have in it um, and so I think we wanted to really bring, you know, transport people to, you know, an amazing rice field or amazing field in Jatilui in Bali, which is Northwest Bali, where, you know, we grew, where we grow botanicals and where, and where my family has a farm. Um, so if you look at our label, the, 
our logo is a palm tree. And so it's very much an ode to our heritage, aligning with the palm leaf manuscripts. Um, and then we wanted on the background, if you see kind of the stylized lines, it's our rice fields, our tiered rice fields. That is our irrigation system in in a, in a lot of Asia. So we don't have pipes that run through the ground to disperse water. Instead, um, our land is terraced. Uh, so we go step by step down and this allows the rainwater to flow down naturally and it's you know naturally sustainable uh, farming. And so that's why, you know, the land can be farmed on for generations um, and be sustainable because of this natural way of farming that we have. And so that is what is on our background, actually. It is our land. And then you see the ingredients on the bottle itself, which are the raw cacao, which grows just on the side of the streets in Bali. If you go down, have a look. Um, and then goji berries, which is in both of our drinks, and also hibiscus, which is, again, in our drink. Um, and so it's really, I don't think that we thought so much of how is this going to sit on a shelf? How is this going to look? And we did not do too much competitive analysis, which maybe we should have, but instead wanted to create something that looked premium, adult, and that honored our heritage. Did you keep the same branding when you know you started out in Asia? when you started this brand and then you moved to America, do you feel like the same branding was able to be kept for both markets or have you, are you seeing differences in how it's um, kind of being received? Mm. I think, yes. Yeah. So we actually changed our label recently before the move to the U S market. Um, we, we changed it in Asia to be a lot bolder. Um, I think we were a bit too discreet in our previous labeling. And then in the U.S., we're changing it once more again to add another layer of explaining to people exactly how to drink it and how to use it. Um, you know, saying that Malati Classic is a dark spirit replacement, um, you know, for people who enjoy the taste of red wine or a darker spirit and then you know the same thing for fresh and so I think it's just more about explanation and in the U.S. market I think being a bit clearer with exactly how people need to drink us and and what they're should be expecting to taste. How did you find your first customer you know your first sale? So we're in over a hundred restaurants in Singapore did you mean in Singapore or in America? Yeah, well, I'd love to hear if it was your approach had to change. But uh, yeah, your very first one and then first in the US would be lovely. Yes. So in, in Singapore, it was truly going door to door. We've, we're in over 100 restaurants in Singapore. And I can honestly say I've been to every single one of those restaurants. I personally did the sales to our first 100. And then now we have a distributor who who handles that for us and maintains those relationships because I'm in America. Um, and then in the U.S., our first um, customers actually came inbound. They were retail shops that requested to sell us. And so we ended up shipping these heavy glass bottles full of liquid from Singapore to the U.S. market, which does not make any sense, by the way, um, and <laughs> does not. And uh 
you know, for reference, you know, to a lot of people, that flight from Singapore to the U.S. is the longest flight in the world. Um, and so, you know, shipping those bottles, they're traveling halfway around the world, essentially. And that's how the first ones came in. It was all inbound. And then once, you know, we started getting more inbound, I w- we were trying to figure out how are these people even finding us? Because we haven't paid for a PR person. We did not push a single ad on digital marketing. I was like, people are just discovering us naturally. And so we found that there is more of a natural fit there. Did you ever work out how they were discovering you? No, they said, no, I did ask. They said, oh, I don't know. We just came across it. I'm like, okay, that's specific. <laughs> Very specific. Was that part of what influenced you to move to your business to the US? Like having this yes. just inbound demand? Yes. Okay. How easy was that decision to make for you? Not easy. <laughs> um not easy. I mean, I don't know what to tell you in terms of moving halfway across the world into a country that you don't know anyone in um, alone as a young woman. I don't think that's an easy decision for anyone to leave behind their family, their friends, their loved ones, you know, to go to a brand new country. It was actually very lonely. And, you know, I think forming a new habit and just getting used to completely different cultures it's not the easiest thing what was it that made you decide you should do it then given that you you know you'd sold to 100 restaurants in singapore it wasn't like you had no business in there why why go why go abroad and be lonely i think that there's truly a need in this market for a product like Malati. And I think that we can really help to connect a lot of drinkers and non-drinkers in America. And so, I mean, honestly, I think that there's nothing like Malati in terms of taste in the market and that there's a real need for it. And so that was really the driving force. As someone who's creating a business for the first time, you but you obviously worked a lot in in this world working as a vc uh, in the world of vc what do you think are some common misunderstandings or misperceptions about starting and growing a business i don't know about misconceptions but i don't think you truly know what it is until you're in it i did not even know what, what it is to be an entrepreneur until i started my company so it's a it's a journey and I think, you know, like anything else in life, you just have to experience it sometimes if you want to. Are there things you can look back on from your, you know, earlier days that you've really struggled with then, but now they're a breeze and now you struggle with something else entirely? Oh yes, a hundred percent. So I struggle with many things, Ian. And so... Don't we all? Don't we all? We're all just doing our best, I truly believe. And, you know, just because you're an entrepreneur, just because even if, let's say, you run a Fortune 500 company, I think we're all the same. We're all just doing our best. And, you know, things that I struggled with so much was the... Um, just 
feeling that I did not belong as an entrepreneur, that I am not strong enough to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, these, this like self-doubt, it still creeps in all the time. I think I question myself so much um, and, and I don't think that's ever going to go away, but you just learn how to manage your weaknesses and learn how to manage your doubt and, and the challenges in a different way. And it's just, it just takes practice, right? Like with anything in life, the more you do something, the better you get at it. Because one thing I think that drives a lot of our fears as people is uncertainty and not knowing, you know, so the first time you do something, you have no idea what to expect. The first time I, I did a trade show, my anxiety levels were off the charts. I had no idea what to expect. The second time I did it, okay, it wasn't, you know, an easy experience, but it was better. And then I think subsequently things just get better. And so that's what it is with anything, with any challenges, things will just get better. That's good to know. What do you think your next big challenge is going to be for the business? I mean, I think I'm right here. And <laughs> the challenge is growing the US market. And I think especially competing with the other non-alcoholic brands that have a lot more firepower, a lot more funding and a lot more connections in the US market than, than we do. Uh, Non-US backed, you know, startup with a uh, Asian female founder who has never lived in the US, um, who has never worked in the Alcobev industry in America, just coming here and just doing her best. Okay, so if you're the underdog, how are you, what's your, you know, hidden skill that's going to help you take them on? I couldn't tell you, Ian. I'm not sure of my unhidden skills. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that... The one thing I do have is perseverance and grit. Useful. So yeah. that's kind of all I'll do. How do you plan for the future of your business? Do you, are you looking out like one week, six weeks, a year in, in, into the future? What does that look like for you? I think what we're looking for is um i think i'm just looking for for the next three months to be honest with you it's almost time to wrap up so i just have two more questions for you the first is a lot more fun than the second in my opinion what is something unique you'd never have learned without starting malati i think something i have learned is that essentially most tasks are equal that you know you can truly do anything as long as you're committed to doing it and that you want to do it so I think you know so often people say like oh wow like this is so much larger to be an entrepreneur I could never do that and I don't think that's true I think anyone can do anything <laughs> it's just a matter of of the effort that they want to put into it it's an interesting viewpoint i like it well then final question where can people go to find out more about you and your business 
We ship nationwide in America on malatidrinks.com. That's M-E-L-A-T-I drinks.com. And we are also in some retail shops, independent retailers throughout the country. So feel free to have a look on our website in our store locator. Perfect. I'll link to those in the show notes. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really fun chatting with you. Yes, thank you so much for your time, Ian. Hey, listeners, Ian here again. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, it would mean so much to me if you subscribed or gave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. And maybe tell a friend.